Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 123, The Tuscan Scene and Florence Rising, 1302 to 1327. In our continuous tour going round and round Italy, and bringing each area up to speed on what the others were doing so as to try, in some way or form, to keep a chronological picture of what was going on, the time has come to visit Tuscany. Since we haven't visited in a while, we're going to first do a quick overview before we pick up in 1302, where we last left off with poor old Dante Alighieri being exiled. Now, perhaps Tuscany is the quintessential Italy, with its rolling hills, beautiful colours and rich vineyards. It's the place where all the middle-aged English and American women come to buy old villas and fix them up with a series of confusing yet humorous misunderstandings with the locals that eventually leads them to find love in the best rom-com fashion. Some, pointing to the great English love for the region, have considered it an additional English county, that of Chiantyshire. But make no mistake, we Italians are also drawn by Tuscany, with our ideal retreat for a couple of days being a one-day trip to one of the many wonderful cities such as Florence, Lucca, Siena, Arezzo, Volterra or Pisa and so on, and then spending a night in one of the many agriturismi, the rural farm-stay inns where you can enjoy the peace and quiet of the countryside, perhaps with a great bottle of, let's say, Montepulciano, and a large Florentine steak. We have, of course, already popped into Tuscany quite a few times, starting almost immediately after the fall of the Longbard Kingdom in the late 8th century to see the example of how Tuscan politics, that of the mark of Tuscany, was influencing and being influenced by papal politics. We also spent time in Tuscany around the era of the Countess Matilda of Tuscany, who was also Marquise is that a female Marquis? Or, well, anyway, she was the ruler of the region, and it was in particular thanks to her, her mother Beatrice in particular, that a little backwater town by the name of Florence had started to gain a certain importance. We then also saw how Tuscany had not been immune from the communal fever that had rocked all of Italy as well as the whole Guelph and Ghibelline business, and we also spent some time there with a great poet, Dante Alighieri. From the start of the 13th to the start of the 14th century, Tuscany in general, and Florence in particular, saw a rapid growth. In this period, 
Florence went from a town of around 15 to 20,000 inhabitants to over 100,000 at the start of the 14th century, at the time of Dante. In other cities, such as Pisa and Lucca, for example, although they didn't grow quite as much as Florence, they also doubled or tripled their populations, reaching a level of 40 to 50,000. This is an indication of the more general trend of the dominance of the city of Florence, which emerged particularly in the 13th and even more in the 14th century. It's a bit hard to understand exactly why it was Florence that flourished more than other cities. It had no natural strategic position, no access to the sea, no raw materials. The river that runs through the city, the Arno, was not even navigable all year round, as were other important rivers such as the Po further north or the Tiber further south. Yet, it became one of the most important and powerful cities, not only in Italy, but in all of the Western world. Florentine wool clothed everyone from the great European monarchs to the popes and cardinals, and many in Italy and Europe would have been in debt with Florentine bankers. The florin would become the currency of Europe, and the Florentine economy was greater than that of all England. During the course of the 1200s, Florence not only expanded its political power, first over the surrounding rural areas and then over many cities in Tuscany, but it also managed to concentrate many important commercial routes to its sphere of influence. By the end of the 14th century, Florence would become the dominant power of all of the region, except for Siena, which would hold out until about the 16th century, and Lucca, which would make it all the way up to the 19th. Another important development of the 13th century that will be central to our story was the growth in power of le arti, the arts or guilds, if you will the organizations representing various professions, such as those of the notaries and judges, the money exchangers or bankers, and the wool merchants and makers, and so on. It is in particular in the latter part of the 1200s that these groups of new rich started to chafe under the rule of the ancient noble families and push for their share of power. Incidentally, for those who are big on card and board games or video games with intrigue and guilds and all that lovely stuff, this is the period we're talking about. Of course, this was going on as the whole Guelphs and Ghibellines business was raging in the region. A lot of the region was dominated by the Ghibellines, starting with the Battle of Montaperti in 1260 in which the Florentine Ghibelline exiles had allied with the cities of Pisa, Siena and Terni, as well as the relatively short-lived king of Sicily, Manfredi, to defeat the Guelph League that had included Florence, Lucca and other Tuscan Guelphs. The leader of the victorious Ghibelline faction in the Battle of Montaperti was Farinata degli Uberti, made famous in Dante's Inferno and one of my favourite characters, 
making his very impressive appearance with such haughty arrogance and strong will that even the torments of hell could not break his spirit. The way Dante depicts him makes for a person who would have been very impressive to be around, but that you definitely would not have wanted to have share a beer with at the pub. Then again, Farinata would probably not have wanted to have a beer with me either, since I am not a member of the high-ranking Florentine nobility, at least not as far as I know. Farinata degli Uberti is actually credited with saving Florence at this time, since the victorious Ghibelline faction wanted to destroy the city, and he put a stop to it. It is in the Ghibelline period that the corporations, the arts, obtained their first entrance into the halls of power. They were, from then on, to be allowed to elect six priors and a gonfaloniere, a sort of city representative, a mayor, if you will, in a certain sense. This organisation initially would work in parallel with the noble families. The ancient noble Gimeline families were having none of this representation of the people nonsense. Of course, when we use the term people in Italian il popolo, we don't mean all the people, but in particular the rich new middle class, if you want to use that anachronistic label, made up of merchants, professionals and artisans. Tensions began to rise and the Guelphs saw their chance and hopped onto the bandwagon. The situation would eventually lead to the Battle of Campaldino on the 11th of June 1289, in which our good old friend Dante Alighieri fought, and which saw an end to the Ghibelline influence in Tuscany. Now, as far as the members of the arts were concerned, they had gotten rid of the pesky Ghibelline nobles, but that didn't mean that the Guelphs didn't also have nobles that would have liked to have gotten back into power. For this reason, between 1293 and 1295, a series of norms were passed prohibiting the exercise of power by the magnates. At this point, it became a big issue to decide which families should be considered noble magnate families and which shouldn't. A list of 147 families were declared as noble, 73 within the city walls and 74 in the surrounding Contado, the rural area around the city. By this time, Ardante was fully involved in politics and a strong supporter of the anti-noble legislation. That is, of course, if it didn't go back too far in the family tree, because the poet himself had a knight lurking around a few generations hence and made it very sure that the norms that wanted to go further back in time were struck down. At the same time, a bit of a loophole was set up, with the members of the noble families being allowed to enter the arts themselves and therefore having access to representative government. Dante himself became a member of the Doctors and Spice Merchants Corporation. This was perhaps totally random or something to do with the fact that being a writer and using ink had something to do with spice and chemicals and whatnot. 
Now, in Florence, just because there weren't any Ghibellines anymore, it didn't mean that all the families and corporations were getting along and being lovely and charming. Indeed, after the end of the whole Guelphs versus Ghibelline struggle, we see the Guelph faction dividing up into Black Guelphs, led by the Donati family, and the White Guelphs, led by the Cerchi family. Both were important banking houses. The White faction, to which Dante belonged, despite the fact that his wife was a Donati, rose to prominence for a while, but by 1302, thanks also to the support of Pope Boniface VIII and Charles of Valois, the black faction managed to take over and kill or exile all of the main representatives of the white Guelphs. You remember that this was also when Dante was exiled and he would never return to his native Florence not even his remains after his death, which to this day lie in the city of Ravenna. Incidentally, if you want to go and visit them in Ravenna, I suggest you take my audio tour, which I did with the Voice Map app. So, the Blackwells were in power, but they had no easy time of it. The exiled White Guelphs, as well as the remaining Ghibellines, would continue to try and get back into power, supported first by Holy Roman Emperor Henry VII, in whom Dante himself put great trust and even promoted him up to heaven, and then by Rudolf IV. Florence also suffered important defeats in this period, such as at the Battle of Montecatini, in 1315 at the hands of the Pisans and the impressive and strategic Guelph versus Ghibelline battle of Alto Pascio on the 23rd of September 1325. We actually mention this battle as a prelude to that of Zappolino, the famous battle of the bucket later that same year. The battle saw Florence allied with Siena and the Pope in the Guelph faction against the Ghibelline faction made up of Milan and Lucca. The Signore of Lucca at the time was our old friend, the Condottiero, the warlord Castruccio Castracani, the dog castrator, and he represented an almost existential threat to Florence in the early 1300s, with his rapid expansion in Tuscany. To counter this great threat, Florence left the path of the Republic and consigned itself to Robert of Anjou, King of Naples, asking him to be the city's signore, lord of the city. The king sent his son, Charles of Calabria, who did manage to limit the threat of Castracani, although it seems he did a better job sucking up the city resources. Nevertheless, Florence did manage to survive. Not only that, but the period of around 50 years that goes from the entrance of the arts into government in the late 13th century and the lordship of Charles of Calabria in the 1330s is actually one of great splendour for the city. 
work on a new ring of walls started to include the houses and shanty towns that had been built attached to the old walls. And as we have seen, the population reached levels that would not be reached again until the 19th century. This was the period of Dante Alighieri, of the artists Cimabue and Giotto, as well as the architect Arnolfo da Cambio. Indeed, as far as architecture goes, this is the period in which building on the Palazzo dei Priori started, the building we now know today as Palazzo Vecchio. It was agreed that no private building could rise higher than the Tower of the Republic, a symbol of the Florentines' undying dedication to freedom. The freedom that they would relatively soon give up. Florence was now about to face a period of international economic crisis, a great plague and internal strife that would lead to a series of rebellions, out of which would emerge the dominion of a single family. Thank you very, very much for listening. Thanks also to my Patreon supporters, starting with the first part of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Alison H, Amanda D, Anthony G, Bill S, Brian Jones, Callan, Carrie W, Selene, Dean V, Dominique T, Emily B, Federica R, Federica R, Francisco A, Gabriel S, Greg Ignazio, Il Valentino James C, Jane J, Jeff M, Jeffrey W, Joseph S, Juan Diego, Julia G, and Old John in Milwaukee. I was very sorry to hear the Brewers got kicked out of the postseason. Also, thank you very, very much to the tippy top Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri level Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Brandon S, David A, Peter W, Kevin O, David L. Renat Sen, and welcome, welcome to a new member of the Super Tupi Top Maria Montessori level, David C. Welcome, David. Thank you for your very generous contribution. Remember, if you feel so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, or at the same URL, you can click through to our social media. That is Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all A History of Italy. Remember that if you go to our support page, you can also become a Patreon supporter and have access to extra content. Once again, thank you very, very much for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Order, order, this session of the representatives of the arts is now in sessions. I'll just call the wills. Will makers. Present. Bakers. Present. Doctors. Present. 
judges and notaries. Present. Right now, we have called this important meeting. Um, excuse me. Yes, what is it? You, you forgot to call me. Well, who are you? I am the representative of the back and bottom scratchers. The what? The back and bottom scratchers. Oh, um, that's job now, is it? Oh, why, yes, sir. I'm surprised you don't know of us. We control a large area near the river. Uh, what is it you do exactly? Well, we scratch backs and bottoms. Isn't that something someone can do to himself? Have you ever tried scratching that place on your back you just can't reach? Well, yes, but I usually get my family to do it, or a friend, or just use a stick. Ah, well, you've never had your back or bottom scratched by one of us. <laughs> but if our services are not welcome, I'll just go back to my colleagues and tell them... No, that... no, there's no need to get annoyed. The back scratchers are welcome. And bottoms. Yes, sorry, and bottoms. We had to expand our area of influence after the great itch of 73. Yes, yes, I'm sure it was tragic. Now, if we may proceed... Uh, um, what now? I, I wish to, to be represented. And who are you? I'm a um, goat comedian. Say what now? A, a goat comedian. I make goats laugh. For what purpose, may I ask? Um, the milk tastes better. All right, all right. As long as we can get this started, we'll add the goat comedians. Um. Oh, for heaven's sake! We're trying to get a meeting started here, and all these weird professions keep popping up, and I had quite enough. What? Let me now call the revision work. Wool manufacturers, bankers, notaries and judges, back and bottom scratchers, goat comedians, belly button lint inspectors, nail clipping disposers, horse whisperers, duck and adult waterfowl whispers, and of course the corporation of those who get very drunk and stand in a corner of the square shouting out abuse at those on the other side. We are here today to decide on the nobility of one snooty son of Horty of the Posh family. Here I am. You are suspected of being a noble. Who? Me? No, indeed. I haven't a noble drop of blood in my body. Don't you know? One might say I'm one of you, a, a commoner. Well, you certainly sound like a noble. Ah, um, well, governor, you're joking, aren't ya? I'm your average Joe. In it. Uh, apples and stairs. Sisters blister. Um, have a baker's and all that. What are you talking about? You sound worse than Dick Van Dyke. Who? Never mind. If you aren't a noble, what about all those horses you have? Ah, they're not horses. They, um, they are my cousins. Cousins? Yes, they're just very ugly. This is all ridiculous. Ah, 
Whoops! <laughs> Would you look at that? I just accidentally dropped a big pile of florins on your desk. Silly me. Um, I'll just leave them there, shall I? Oh, uh, well, come to think of it, you're probably not a noble after all. Off you go. Oh, thank you very much. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to a history of Italy. Oh. <laughs> Duck and other waterfall. Waterfowl. Duck and other waterfall. Waterfowl. <laughs> Duck and other waterfall. <laughs> waterfowl. <laughs> Sentire media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.